This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Tonight on Bite, I'm joined by Simon and Joe, and I'm Vanessa. Hey, team. Great to have you here. Good evening. Good evening. Tonight, we are excited to be looking ahead to the Education in Games Summit, which is on this Friday at ACME as part of Melbourne International Games Week. Before we get there, let's head to some news. Simon, what have we got this week? Okay, starting us off... uh Influential economist Dr Jeffrey Sachs has told The Guardian that he supports calls for a tech tax on the world's biggest tech companies uh, in order to avoid a dystopian future in which AI leads to a concentration of global wealth in the hands of a few thousand people. Uh, He has basically said that uh, we need the tax because new technologies are dramatically shifting the income distribution worldwide uh, from labour. Some may argue that income distribution has never been fairly distributed to labour, but uh, from labour to intellectual property and other sorts of capital income. So, if um, rather than cutting capital income taxation, he says, uh, we ought to be finding ways to tax capital income and IP income. Uh, he goes on to say that the marginal costs of production of artificial intelligence are basically zero. So uh, there is an opportunity, he says, to mandate the use of AI for the public good. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, not something you hear economists say very often, you know, a, a, an embracing of the what is essentially the commons. But it, it's it's an interesting perspective and, from my perspective, a nice one to hear. Um, it does really give you that sense about how imminent the displacement of real jobs by AI capabilities is. And, you know, I think it's, it's a mistake to talk about it as if this is a future occurrence. This is happening already. It certainly is. And, you know, I mean, people in all sorts of um, industries have, you know, had their jobs replaced by various various waves of technology. It happened in the Industrial Revolution. It happened with the first wave of computers and it's happening now. It just seems like because we've made these things so much smarter, they can do so much more stuff. And we have created economies around uh, jobs which computers are actually suddenly quite good at. It was really great to read this um, proposition as well because I think it's very easy for us to think, okay, well, we'll really lose out on our taxable base of employees. But uh, when you don't know a lot about tax, I don't think that you automatically think about the sort of payroll tax that companies pay on every employee. So when they're suddenly changing from being an employee of thousands of people to an employee that maybe has a few people to manage a lot of software doing the work of thousands of people, it incredibly displaces that that revenue base and you know really means that you know companies wouldn't be putting enough back into the economy and and being part of the society that they're operating within um yeah so it was it was a great piece to to read um if if uh if not a little alarming because all these things always alarm me slightly (laughs) one of us will tweet it yeah yeah it's great Uh, So something else that's going on at the moment, uh, which I want to call attention to, is the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment, the Assistance and Access Bill 2018. It's currently under review by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Um, Opponents do fear the process is being rushed a bit and that bill could be law 
um, within as soon as two months. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a board member of Digital Rights Watch. Uh, we are an organisation that's uh, really interested in privacy and um, digital literacy and uh, you know, I guess civic responsibility. Um, this particular bill is one that gives law enforcement new powers to conduct covert surveillance on electronic devices and to compel technology companies to assist in decrypting private communications. We've seen a lot of movement in this space around the world recently. Um, for example, you might have read articles about uh, New Zealand having the right to compel people to hand over passwords to their managed devices um, when they're entering New Zealand, which is you know, a really big step into, into people's privacy. Last week, uh, Angus Murray, Dr Sulet Dreyfus, who's been a previous guest on the program, and Justin Flaherty appeared before the Joint Committee to outline some of the civil society concerns, particularly around privacy, proportionality and judicial oversight. Tech giants Google and Facebook have also joined an alliance of civil and digital rights groups to try to defeat the um, encryption laws currently under discussion. And the alliance is called the Alliance for a Safe and Secure Internet. It's called on the government to slow down and listen to legitimate concerns about the encryption bill. And the alliance does include rights groups, which I'm a member of, which is uh, Digital Rights Watch, but also other groups like the Human Rights Law Centre, Amnesty International, as well as the Communications Alliance, which is an industry group featuring telcos, Optus and Telstra. And it also features the digital industry group, um, which is called Digi, which is an industry body including Google, Facebook, Twitter and Amazon. It's very rare to have this a group of um, interests representing the same side on an issue, all seeing um, really problematic things with this bill. So it's definitely one to watch. You can look at the proceedings of the, the Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. They do um, film and uh, share those. So that's something to find. It can be a little dry, but I think uh, it's something that we will report on as well and that you can follow a whole range of privacy organisations and they'll be following this. As will we. Yeah. Um, and finally, thanks to Motherboard for this one. You've heard <laughs> of the internet of things. Get ready for the internet of stinks. Yes, researchers at the fabulously named Imagineering Institute in Malaysia have semi-successfully tested a device that sends smells digitally over the interwebs. So unlike other smellovision-style devices that used to use sort of a combination of chemicals and cartridges to, to to mix together and get the desired smell. Um, this device works by sticking a couple of electrodes up your nostrils. Much more appealing. <laughs> much more appealing. And much it neater. is actually very clever. It's quite clever. Yeah. Um, at the moment, it looks more like something you'd see in J-Car than something you'd see in an <laughs> Apple store, and it only works on one in four participants that it's been tested on. Is it wrong that I'm picturing the operation man with his little red LED nose and just <laughs> thinking of, like, electrodes in your nose? No, no, I think that's, that's entirely not wrong. Um, but so those participants, they don't all smell the same things, yeah. but um, they've reported experiencing a range of smells, including fragrance, um, minty smells, sweet smells, and chemical smells. Yeah. So I guess this is a really early stage. So, But what I guess they're trying to do is work out which sensors, if there is like a defined sensory perception that they can, um, you know, 
massage with these electrodes to then give the brain a sense to send smells digitally. And, you know, I guess there's going to be a lot of trial and error, but this is something that people are are doing I right think now. it's amazing that it's something that people have said they want. Um, I, I'd be I'd be checking that. I'm not sure that uh, you know internet culture is so much about trolling and you know rickrolling and these sort of things. I just think this is this is ripe for when, for yeah, abuse. For yeah, abuse. Ripe for ripe for abuse. Think what but... you could do with the smell of burnt toast. <laughs> Oh, God. Like, oh, can I feel my arm? I'm, or is it just the electrodes? I'm not sure. I'm just thinking about how the VR goggles are going to look now. You're going to have to hook them in first and then put them over your ears. But yeah. And shove the electrodes up your nose yeah. and finally you're ready to hop online. But anyway, that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this is the future. This was the news. Thank you very much, Simon. That's, that's incredible. We are very excited at the moment because Minu Rami has just joined us in studio. She's an author, a teacher and an international Minecraft expert, which I know would make some some kids that I know very excited right now. She's managing Minecraft education at Microsoft and this Friday she's presenting the opening keynote at the Education and Games Summit 2018, which is part of Melbourne International Games Week and co-presented by ACME and the Victorian Department of Education. Welcome, Minu. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's fantastic to have you here. Look, many of our listeners will have heard of Minecraft, but fewer will know about Minecraft EDU. How do you describe it to people? So I think the the things that I have found to be uh, true about the educators who are bringing Minecraft into their classroom is they're excited about using the the commitment, the excitement that students have around Minecraft and using that energy and shifting it towards learning. And that's what's exciting about the work uh, that they're doing. Um, We've taken the game that everyone knows and loves and we've added tools to it to make it easier for educators to use it in the classroom. So one quick example is there's something called camera and portfolio. So you can actually literally have students uh, take pictures of what they're building from the beginning all the way to the end and then literally turn those images into a short movie where they actually narrate what they're doing on top of it using their voice. Um, that's just a one very small example of how we've added specific features that make it useful for teaching and learning. But we've not We've not schoolified it. There's still, you know, creepers in the game. You can <laughs> you can still play survival mode. And we think it's important because, you know, that experience has its one place. And then a, a, a well-designed lesson taking unique affordances of Minecraft into account also has value. And, and that's what we believe. We think that joy and learning can live side by side in a classroom. So you've... Um, in that trailer, it mentions that it's this is sort of building on, like you say, sort of work that was happening already. What sort of uh, delightful things have you seen Minecraft used for in the classroom? That's such a uh, great thing to to ask. So I'll shout out a couple of actually Australian educators. So in New South Wales uh, at Glenwood High School, there's this. Uh, educator named Nolene uh, Callahan, who's just this incredible educator, um, and her students took 
uh, geography and math, and they combined it into a, a lesson for Minecraft. What they did was they studied uh, design of cities and suburbs, and they took into account, you know, where people like to live, what are traffic patterns, what are the needs of land use, and what should we consider when we're designing the places where communities thrive. And then they actually worked in small groups and built uh, suburbs, and students had to justify their decisions based on all the research and background uh, learning that they had done, and they brought that in. And I think that's such a powerful example of it. Yes, you could do that on uh, paper and pencil, but uh, where I think Minecraft thrives or where Minecraft really shines is when educators take the unique affordances and apply it to, to skills that students need to learn. Wow, I love that that sounds like real-world modeling in yeah. Minecraft where we tend to think of it as an exploratory fantasy space. Yeah, and, and there's that narrative too, right? So one of my favorites, so I'm a former high school English uh, educator. I taught literature, and one of my favorite ways that I've seen folks use Minecraft when it comes to literacy is take something as simple as uh, shipwrecks. So, you know, we had the aquatic update. People were really excited about dolphins in Minecraft. <laughs> but now you can actually find shipwrecks in your world uh, that are randomly generated. And, you know, something as simple as asking students to write a background story of a shipwreck that they found uh, what happened to the ship? Who was on this ship? Where was it headed? What, what caused it to, to wreck? Um, those are just simple questions, and there are like entry points to creative writing. There are entry points to igniting students' imagination, and and that students who that student who may be fearful of writing or might be learning another language, it just gives them that entry point to start exploring uh, themselves as a writer. So, in the big picture, what does the Minecraft Education Project hope to achieve? I think uh, my my uh, our fearless leader Deirdre Cornstorm, uh, who leads Minecraft, says it best. She says that you know I want Minecraft to shift how teaching and learning happens. And I think uh, the part in the trailer that you kindly played that gave me goosebumps is that part. Is that we're not simply just talking about putting another tool in the classroom or or um, you know forcing educators to adapt. It's really about shifting mindset of how education happens. It's about uh, letting go of fear of like, oh my God, I'm going to use a tool that my students know way more about than I do. Mm. It's about let, uh, it's about meeting students where they are. It's about uh, uh, bringing something into the classroom that they're, you know, uh, needless to say, passionate about. And again, it's about that uh, joy and play in learning. What age groups is this really working for, do you think? Um, I would say that, you know, the examples that I've seen uh, in in U.S., we would say kindergarten through college. Um, but I would say our, our probably our most active uh, educators tend to be between uh, grades 3 to grade 9, t uh, 10. Um, so, you know, about, you know, eight to, to almost 15-year-olds 
I would say is our sweet spot. Um, but one of the one of my favorite examples is actually in a college introductory composition class. Um, we have an educator named Chris Stewart in the states at Clemson University, and he actually uses Minecraft to teach uh, first year students compositions. And they talk about things like world building and how do you build worlds in Minecraft, but then how do you also build worlds when you're writing? And that kind of exploration that he does with writing in Minecraft is really interesting. That is really interesting, yeah. I never thought that Minecraft would have a place in a college writing course, but in the hands of Chris Stewart, there is. I've seen people put passion projects into Minecraft mm-hmm. and, and build, you know, versions of um, logic machines and really, you know, basic computers yeah, that are even amazing. calculators. Amazing yeah. to yeah. see, yeah, yeah built yeah. out of blocks, like virtual yeah. 3D blocks and yeah. and um, and logic and, and setting something in motion. Uh, it's, it's, it's very compelling. I wonder what sort of requests you get from users considering, you know, how, how broad the, the scope is to create. You know, we brought uh, coding into Minecraft. Then we brought chemistry into Minecraft. I think we, what I love about my team is we're very uh, fan-driven. We're very customer-driven. So we like to keep our ear to the ground and really listen to what educators need. That's one of the reasons why I'm actually in Australia and then we'll go to New Zealand. I'm lucky enough that I get to represent a lot of people who work on this team, but we can't all travel all the time. Um, but I'm here because, as you know, Australia has this, uh, all schools in Australia have access to Minecraft education. And what I'm really here to do is uh, meet with as many educators as I can, uh, hear about their experience, and learn from them where we should go next. But I think uh, we've, we've made some really uh, important investments in the areas of, of things like coding and chemistry. And again, we'll keep listening to folks to see where we should go next. I'm glad to hear that the scope is broader than coding because when I initially heard about the project, I thought it was going to be all coding. No, yeah. and and I think uh, the most, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, it you kind of find what you are drawn to. So if you're really into art, you'll find that art in Minecraft community. If you're like me, you'll find other people who are drawn to uh, the creative storytelling aspect of it. There's something for everyone. In yeah, there. I think it's really clever because it's something that kids would do in games since games have begun, we'd always play with them and not always necessarily play the game that had been mapped out for yeah. us. We would play the way we wanted to play and yeah. obsess over our character design or our environment design and, and that sort of thing. So it's really tapped into something very real about users' play. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how you scale these sort of ideas and do you ever see it you know, branching out beyond schools to just resources that parents could access if they just want to do something in the school holidays with their kids? Yeah, no, I think that that is such a um, great point. So if your listeners or if even if you wanted to check it out, if people go to education.minecraft.net, we actually put all of our lessons and all of our activities on our site for free and accessible to anyone because we realize that not every single school will have the uh, the access or the time or the willingness to take this on. But if a parent wants to do it, they can literally go on our site, grab an activity, grab a lesson, and then try it with their students. And it might actually help 
uh, parents build that bond um, because I know when students and, and parents collaborate and when you're willing to sit down with them and figure out like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, or what is that block? Or why are you doing that? Uh, a conversation opens and that's such a meaningful connection because you're taking interest in something that they're really passionate about. And at the other end of the scale with the people who you know, are designing and setting curriculums and in like an official capacity. Is Microsoft working with any any sort of more official gov- education boards, governments, that sort of thing in any in any district? Yeah, so both New South Wales and Victoria have shown their support uh, a great deal. We we're actually me- meeting with the Ministry of Education of Victoria tomorrow, um, and we're very grateful for their support. And we're partnering around things like curriculum because we don't uh, we want to make sure that we have lessons on our site that meet the needs of Australian educators um, and and that we understand the local context and we understand the local educational priorities and so yeah it's that partnership that uh, collaboration that makes uh, support for uh, educators and students possible. Mino, it strikes me that you're doing the sort of job that people dream about, where you've mashed up. You <laughs> I'm, know, traditional... I'm really popular among yeah. nine-year-olds. <laughs> well, you've mashed up, you know, traditional education, but with the games sector. Um, how did you end up slipping into this and finding out that this space existed, or even getting interested in it? Yeah, so I'm not a I'm not a typical gamer, and and people are either relieved when I say that or disappointed uh, when I say that. But uh, I taught. Uh, for over 10 years in the in the school district of Philadelphia in the states and then while I was in the classroom um, I worked on things like creating a network for English teachers around the world while actually using Twitter and um, I wrote a book for teachers as, as you mentioned and some of that work drew the attention of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation oh, and they were interested yeah. in uh, uh, educator communities and how to spur them and sustain them and that's sort of what I have always been interested in the intersection of learning and community and that's what I uh, went to the foundation to support and help uh, lead their portfolio on that work and then someone left the foundation went to Microsoft um, and thankfully I, I met uh, my team um, when this opportunity opened up and and you know it, 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 again even though I wasn't a typical video gamer I think my my belief in changing education practices to support students um, to be the problem solvers of tomorrow I think that passion serves me well in this role when I'm helping other educators make them that same shift mm. Um is there any any uh, one uh, other speaker that's going to be on at the Education and Games Summit that you want to want to draw some attention to while you've got the opportunity? Yeah, I think the the thing that I'm most excited about is actually we're doing a meetup for educators in uh, in Australia and nearby who have come come over, and some of them are really into Minecraft. Some of them may not know a lot about it, but we're hosting them, and and again we're doing that 
listening and learning from them. Um, so I'm really excited about that opportunity, and ACME is hosting us, and uh, we're really excited. Tremendous. Look, Mino uh, Rami has just been speaking with us. Uh, she's in Melbourne for the ACME Education and Games Summit taking place this Friday, the 26th of October at ACME. We will tweet out a link. Um, Mino, wonderful to have you in the country. Great Thank to you hear so your much. passion for it. Thank you so much. Thank Pleasure. You. We uh, have a new guest on the phone. It's also someone who is speaking at the Education and Games Summit 2018. His name is Brett Levy. He is the Chief Executive of Cyber Dreaming and a VR artist and Indigenous culture, uh, sorry, cultural heritage creator. And he'll be sharing highlights from his Virtual Songlines Indigenous Software Toolkit during the event on Friday. Welcome, Brett. Hey, welcome. You, uh, you caught me cooking... What do you, how do I call it? Kangaroo mint spaghetti bolognese. Oh, that a, sounds tremendous. Ruignaise, I used to call it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry that we're getting in between you and your protein this evening, but that is the show that we have. It is very, you know, interrupt dinner sort of moments. It's <laughs> good. Thanks for being available for a chat tonight. Look, it sounds like we're in for a tremendous uh, day on Friday. We just spoke to Minu Rami, who was telling us about the Minecraft EDU uh, project. But your project sounds fascinating as well. Could you give us... Yeah, I was going to say, she's pretty deadly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Look, just to unpack it a little bit, um, when we hear virtual song lines, you know, it's, it's very evocative, but um, what, is, what is a song line and what does that mean to you? Well, uh, I think song lines are trade routes, pathways, storylines. It's the knowledge in the land, and I think it's what connects us with the land for First Nations people all over the country. Um, there's some great um, pieces of work that, describe that and everybody's got their different views but i just think it's really about storytelling excellent well with um cyber dreaming you've been experimenting with work in the virtual reality space but also crossed over into the the geographic kind of information services space as well which is a really interesting uh, crossover there how did you start getting you know involved in in developing across those spaces well we wanted to be biami if you know who Biami is. No, no, educate us. Oh, Biami's God. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just a creation being. We just wanted to be Biami. Yeah. And we wanted to sort of make the land. And the, what we saw was that we could do it with new media technologies. Usually so when the, technologists tell me that they want to be God, I'm a lot more terrified, but this sounds quite <laughs> benign. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's sort of trying to have fun. I mean, we're trying to edutain. How's that? I love it. I love it. We want to tell a story. We want to get people more informed. And we want to get them to have a connection with First Nations people. And if you know much about me, I love games. Mm. So I've been a gamer for a long time. And and I wanted to see if I can bridge game or game theory with Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal cultural knowledge. And that's where the, 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 the sort of crossover happens. That's really brilliant because often people talk about game sort of technologies and experiences as being something that distances us from the real environment, you know, that we're, that we're surrounded by and, and, you know, possibly from, you know, the real world. But you're instead talking about this as, as another lens on that. Um, when did you begin uh, work as Cyber Dreaming? Well, you don't really want to know how old I am, do you? <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time, but um, 
but we've always I've had lots of stops and starts and and one of the things we worked on originally was um, a national radio network and that was rolled out and um, there's lots of ra- great radio stations about that mm-hmm. and then from there I got into a bit of film and video production all about Aboriginal knowledge first and foremost mm. and then it just morphed into this so I've been at this game and thinking about it and working on it since the 90s it's so amazing. It's and feel free to take while. as much creative license as you'd like around any, any sort of time frames, you know, as we go forward. Yeah. Uh, uh, this, um, the work we're doing and now at present is really becoming a sharp spearhead. We're getting to this point of doing what I call cultural survival games. Mm. And I think if we can get into the truth of that, that really would work. So Brett, that's what we're trying to work on. Yeah, so Brett... Simon here, tell us about it. what what is it then? What what will a user experience? Well, the user experience will be like walking in the landscape, mm. um, experiencing the land as it was, and we're setting it in a historical setting usually uh, before first settlement. And that in that world, people have to survive. They've got to hunt. They've got to gather. They've got to listen to the stories of the elders. They've got to gain their wisdom and then apply that in their own survival and uh, we're working slowly through that to get better and better and improve something that's going to be really photorealistic so we're inspired by games like Assassin's Creed and that company Ubisoft is doing some wonderful stuff which is really real and really visually rich and they're starting to dabble into this you know knowledge space this true space and we want to be um you know, inspired by those people, you know, jump on the uh, coattails of the giants. I've seen some videos of, of your work and it really does look beautiful. I mean, the, the Australian landscape can be can be very stunning. and But there's also um, that sense of, um, there's a bit of a sense of like something foreboding or ominous about, you know, the imminence of, of Invasion Day and that sort of thing. Is is that something that you also explore in the work or is or do you sort of stay set in um, in the sort of period of maybe innocence before then? Um, in a sense, you're right. Um, we do know that that's a big subject and we're not afraid to embrace it yet, but we, we're also trying to slowly creep up on that subject. Mm. Um, we, we're sitting it at 18... Um, what are we sitting at? 1787, I'm saying. And that's um, after Captain Cook's been here and just before the First Fleet. And that way we can be... There's a lot of good knowledge we can capture on that, like the topography of the land, the original river routes, um, things like that. You know that we've got about 30 projects done. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've done a Brisbane one, a, um, a Sydney one, uh, a couple of Sydney ones. Uh, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, uh, out to Horsham. Um, we're even exploring, and we've done a, a reconstruction of Melbourne even. Mm. Um, but in that one, we're still trying to work with the TOs, the traditional owners, to get their knowledge put into this and brought into this. Look it. Oh, as, sorry. sorry, as as a game, it sounds really hard. <laughs> How, how's what what has the reaction been like from from people who have tried it out? Um, I think it's very, it's enriching. And, and I'll say really honestly, we feel a really big responsibility. Mm. There's been some games that people have made and you might have heard about them that have gone wrong and have done it disrespectfully. And we're mindful of that and we want to do it right. And so that's what we're doing here. We're trying to really be true 
we want to make it as rich as, as you're seeing it out of your eyes in a historical setting. So to get nerdy for a moment, what tools are you yep. using? We're using Unity. Oh, and, um, nice. And I was at the Unity conference on Monday and we did a bit of a video at the start of that and they were so happy with what we did, they put their logo on it. Brilliant. Yes. Which, that's pretty special, if you know what that means. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We, we are chuffed and uh, my team, um, you know, I've got a few, I think I say on my website, black, white and brindle. <laughs> And they just they were just moved by that too, so oh. and they even worked a bit longer than they need to, but they always do that. Yeah. Look, I think um this this game is, is around at a time where there's so much interest in indigenous knowledge and there's always little pop up seminars at my local libraries about what the take is on the seasons and what we can learn about planting and, and being more in touch with um with our environment. I really love that you've made this tool uh, available as a as a toolkit, so that people can take um, some of the the um, artifacts that you have and, and some of the design about how to how to immerse people in environment and then apply it to different things. How are you keeping track of you know who's getting involved and in using your software toolkit? Uh, we're not tracking it very well, actually. That's the truth of it. There's there's so many inquiries. It's not funny. Mm. Um, one of the aspects of this is we want to do something called coding for culture. Mm-hmm. And we want to teach people how we do what we do. Um, and, uh, and I'm inspired by all the great startup companies. Um, one of the most famous startup companies you would know is a company called Microsoft. You might have heard of them. <laughs> um, they, they went a long way trying to get their code working. And even, even many of these other companies went a long way doing their stuff, giving it away for nothing before they actually got up and made some money. We're not about that. We do want to do well. We want to, you know, survive and keep going and keep iterating. But um, the key here is that this stuff is all about giving, empowering to um, First Nations people as much as we can. And if they can tell their stories a different way, an innovative way, a digital way, I think there's something in that. That sounds brilliant, Brett. Um, we are so uh, interested to, to see more from you in this space. I think there's a, a huge appetite for it. And uh, sounds like your audience is in for a bit of a treat on Friday. Yeah, well, um, let me give you a little bit of a forward plan with what we're hoping to do if, if people are interested. Yeah. We're going to work away on the new Oculus Quest uh, VR kit and that's a, a wireless headset yeah i haven't had a chance to touch that one yet how is it yeah oh it's pretty special yeah but imagine running uh, well not running so much but walking carefully <laughs> in, the Berks, in the Burke street mall spearing virtual kangaroos with your virtual spear oh wallabies <laughs> <laughs> you're just you've got the rue bolognese on the mind yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just want to reconstruct the mall as it was prior wow. to the settlement. And, and then people will say, well, that's what it was. And, you know, imagine a ghost gum here, a, a eucalypt there, and, you know, long grass. Half of Melbourne a, will be um, a swamp. It'll be amazing. Yeah, well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm not actually being facetious. <laughs> a swamp's a supermarket. Yes, yeah. No, it sounds tremendous. Um, 
Brett, thank you so much for speaking to us tonight. You know, we desperately didn't want to spoil anything that you'd be covering on Friday, but we did want to call attention to it. Um, you will be speaking at the Acme Education and Games Summit uh, taking place this Friday at Acme. We will tweet out the link. Um, have a great time and, and please keep in touch because we want to hear, you know, what you're doing. Yeah, off to my um, kangaroo spaghetti. <laughs> Thanks. Enjoy. Thanks for your time. Okay. Yeah, bon appétit. Cheers. <laughs> We've had the pleasure of having a few delightful guests with us. Um, there's something I saw that caught my eye in Shelley Palmer's blog. I don't know if anyone reads that. He's an American guy who just keeps up with tech. And he's been musing about smartphones and what might be around the corner based on all these uh, trends that he's been looking at, all these tech conferences he goes to. He's, um, he's sort of supposed that uh, quite a few people are hinting at the idea that your phone will bend and fold in the future. You might have little flexy, bendy phones. Um, Samsung apparently has long hinted that it plans to release a phone that bends. It didn't want to only bend when you wanted it to, surely. Well, that would be important, yes. Because, yeah. you know, if you're trying... It's, a, it's hard enough getting the orientation right if you don't have it locked. If your phone's suddenly <laughs> bending away from you when you just or just want to watch Doctor Who on the train, like, that's just going to be annoying. All I can think is that Dali will approve. We can have a little bendy, you know, like, watch thing. <laughs> that would be great. See, watches I could understand a bit more, in fact. And it would be more comfortable. They're, they're getting a little sizable sometimes they if you've got a little they're getting, wrist. getting very blocky, the watches. All of a sudden, your phone will be a slap band. That's it. Yeah, back to the 80s with that. Look, unofficially, the, the Samsung project is uh, dubbed the Galaxy F for foldable. So that's a bit lame, that that's, title. <laughs> that's not go- they're not going to release it really, under that. I'm really think. sorry to hear that, Samsung. <laughs> <laughs> Look, so another thing that they think might happen to our phones is that what they will become indestructible. Now, considering that no other person who sells products that we regularly need to update has succeeded in making anything indestructible, this one seems tenuous. But uh, they are talking about the improvements to smartphone glass and... Um, you know, the bendability, I guess, is also getting around Bendgate, for example, the, the bendability of some of the Apple models. Um, getting dust-proof and waterproof to a certain depth and scratch-resistant. Um, I think that's quite far from indestructible. These I are- mean, they're being sold on that now anyway. Yeah. It's not really true, but, I mean, you know, I mean, my phone is allegedly waterproof-ish. I think they, you know, waved it near a glass of water <laughs> in the ad, you know. And, and it didn't spontaneously combust. combust exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's very hard to posit the future, especially mm. it's something which is so ubiquitous as a phone because, mm. I mean, you know, at one point... Phones- Someone has to be imagining our, you know, extra features though. It's true. And, you know, to be honest, when people were talking about uh, voice interactivity and and voice as a a user interface, I was completely like, no one's ever going to use that. But now I speak to my phone all the time. It makes sense, yeah. It doesn't seem, you know, I don't feel like a crazy person. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, look, one one theory that I do think would be excellent is if your phone could prevent spam calls. So increasingly people are looking at using AI to cut down the amount of calls that we're getting from, from numbers that we don't recognise, um, that are asking us to do surveys or change our energy company and what have you, and a lot of them being very, you know... Well, that is one thing that my phone is very good at. If a sp- mm. When a sp- spam caller calls, the phone goes red. It says, this is probably a spam caller. I just don't answer it. I, it asks me if I want to block it forever in a day, and, it's, and I do. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it requires your call history being logged to a database, you know, mm. somewhere in on an island somewhere probably but yeah it's not the cloud yeah yes yes well you know there you go something to something to chew on what's happening in events and opportunities this week i can't imagine what there's might a, be happening this friday <laughs> there's, this, there's this little event you've probably <laughs> never heard of called tax um it's upstart upstart of an event um but they do have uh their oz indie showcase on and they have announced uh which Games are going to be in the Oz Indie Showcase. Uh, those games include Dissembler uh, by Ian McClarty, uh, a subtle, subtle logic... I can never say subtle. Subtle logic game... It's, it's about, a subtle pronunciation. Yes, it is. About unravelling bold abstract designs one colour at a time. Uh, Double Shot by Aberrant Realities, a fast neon-soaked VR bartending adventure in the 80s. Serve drinks, shoot bad guys and look rad doing it. Uh, <laughs> that sounds awesome. It does. Infliction by Caustic Reality. Uh, Infliction is an interactive nightmare. You'll piece together <laughs> clues and try to atone for past sins. Well, All, yeah. yeah. That sounds good. All Better the while, than, yeah. a malevolent force dogs your footsteps seeking retribution. But at least it's interactive because it's the nightmares that aren't interactive that you really worry well, about. That's true. Uh, this one sounds like a nightmare to me as well. Mars Underground <laughs> by Moloch Media. Mars Underground is an apocalyptic adventure where you relive the same day over and over. So it's basically oh, Groundhog Day set I on love Mars. It. I love Groundhog Day. Um, explore the possibilities of this time loop and uncover multiple endings. Spin Rhythm. Uh, by Super Entertainment, it's an interac- interdimensional electronic music adventure featuring fluid analogue controls and handcrafted levels. That sounds very interesting. And Teleblast uh, by Tim Valletta, a fast-paced local multiplayer game where up to four players can attempt to outplay each other using teleporters that explode when you use them. Wow. Congratulations. Like fun. Yeah, to all those uh, game makers who are featured in the Indie Showcase. And, yeah, yeah. Simon, I think we need to do this again another time, but uh, instead of, like, telling us what the games are about, you need to announce the title and then we'll tell you what we <laughs> think the game is. <laughs> because I don't think I would have guessed Exploding Teleporters. No, neither. I would have picked some kind of, like, 80s retro telecommunications yeah. ridiculousness. But when I say spin rhythm to you, Joe, what comes to mind? Spin rhythm? like Yeah. Spin classes. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I was picturing oh, really? you know, the game that would make those classes enjoyable. Yeah. See, it sounds like, <laughs> sounds like the DJ version of Guitar Hero to me, which there is, isn't there? There's like a DJ. I'm sure there is. There's got to be. There's got to be. Anyway. If there's anyway, any so- six-year-old little girls who want to tell me about that DJ program that exists that I don't know about, <laughs> feel free to call us now. And if you've played any of those games, please tweet by into it and give us your review. Oh, yes, I want to know about the Mars one. That sounds tremendous. Look, um, we've had a, a magnificent time tonight chatting to our guests, Minu Rami and to Brett Levy. They're both here for the Acme Education and Games Summit. I've plugged it a lot. I'll tweet it out. 
it's on this Friday, Acme. It's going to be amazing. Um, it almost makes me wish I was in education. It's just that good. <laughs> That's pretty good. Big thank you to Simon and Joe for, for being my co-pilots this evening. Thank you. I hope that you would um, be willing to spend time in a spin rhythm game with me sometime. I'll um, play some of that teleporting blast game with you next time. You reckon it's multiplayer? I'm yeah. not willing to spend any time with anybody in a post-apocalyptic Mars underground bunker, though. <laughs> Maybe we can just do the unfolding kind of dissembler game with you. you. That seems like meditative and it's kind of gorgeous looking too. Happy about that one. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, we we live to please. Thanks for listening tonight. If you're out there, I hope you're having a good one. Um, We've been biting to it and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew up next and have a great week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.